Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. This is the word of the Lord. This, uh, this passage obviously is addressed to members of the congregation, but as it speaks to members of the congregation, I think it speaks to leaders of the congregation as well, because uh, in telling um, leaders that they must rule, uh, in telling the, the, the congregation that they must submit, that they must obey their leaders, of course it tells leaders that they must rule. And that's what I want to look at here uh, today. Uh, when one of my daughters was uh, much younger, someone asked her what she wanted to do when she grew up, and she said, I want to delegate. <laughs> which uh, we always thought was kind of funny because in some ways it sort of summarizes her personality. Uh, you know, little girls are known for being kind of bossy, and, and I think you could say she was. The truth is that the thought of bossing people around can seem attractive to us, but we need to keep in mind the words that J.R.R. Tolkien sent to his son. Uh, he said, the most improper job of any man, even saints, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all, those who seek it. Nevertheless, despite the fact that so few men are fit for this, God does assign to some the task of ruling others. And like it or not, uh, at All Saints Church, that's you. Uh, you know, we live in an odd time in history because while we are still, because um, while we still have the problem uh, of having some people who are all too eager to rule over others, to, you know, to get their hands on the levers of authority, in our culture... Quite often, and especially often in the church, authority is despised and not sought after at all. Indeed, I would say in many places, and frequently in the church, authority is treated as a kind of hot potato that nobody really wants to hold. Um, we're scared of being in charge, scared to rule, scared to exercise authority. We don't want to exercise authority. It's a burden we don't want to carry. And if you think about it, it's easy to see why. There are a lot of reasons why, but one is, I think, that we live in an egalitarian age where hierarchy has become a bad word. Through egalitarian eyes, any and all authority looks oppressive. Acts of leadership are interpreted as self-serving power plays on the part of the leaders. Now, of course, authority has been abused, and we have to be aware of that, and that adds to the challenge we have. So we have to ask the question, how do leaders lead in an egalitarian age? If you're a leader, you have to ask this question. How do you exercise authority faithfully in this kind of context when all authority has become suspect? When age and experience and wisdom are not really valued, when expertise and office are not respected, uh, perhaps the way they have been in, in past eras? The modern Christian uh, answer to this typically is to uh, put forth a certain model of leadership, uh, what we call the servant leader uh, model. And there is a lot of truth in this model. There's no question it derives from Jesus, from his example and his teachings in the Gospels. When I think of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, where he says to his disciples who've got the wrong idea of greatness, the wrong idea of leadership, Jesus says, let he who wants to be great or he who wants to be your leader become your servant. And so that's the idea. We put these two things together, servant and leadership. It sounds paradoxical, but now we're accustomed to it because Christians have been doing this for so long. And we say that servant leaders are leaders who are humble. They are sacrificial. And all of that's good. Uh, servant leaders always consult with those who are under their charge. They're, they're always seeking to 
to, to, to hear what others have to say. They're good listeners. And I think all of that's good. But I am afraid that we may have diluted the leadership part of servant leader and emphasized the servant part so much that the servant leader really is no leader at all anymore. Uh, all too often, the servant leader today is someone who, uh, as the saying goes, leads from behind, which is not really leadership. You know, you kind of pull the people, you get their opinion in, and oh, that's what we were going to do anyway. You know, it's that kind of thing. And that's not really leadership. Uh, that's not really ruling, but that's a widespread phenomenon. Uh, I think you've seen this happen in marriage, uh, the way marriage is often looked at today. Husbands are the heads. We all agree with that because that's clearly taught in Scripture. And so they are supposed to be servant leaders as it goes. But let me give you an example of a supposedly conservative uh, teacher who d- is describing what that means, what that, in, in her view, is supposed to mean. She says, men uh, have a responsibility to exercise headship in their homes. Christ revolutionized what that means. Authority is not the right to rule. It is the responsibility to serve. That's how Mary Cassian, who's a well-known uh, conservative teacher of women, well-known conservative complementarian. Did you hear that? Authority is not the right to rule. It's the responsibility to serve. Okay, do you see what's happened there? Men still have all the responsibilities they've always had, but they don't have any authority to go with it. Okay, headship and authority mean that you are responsible, but not that you actually rule. That's the view, and I'd say that's common in the church as well. And I think that's a real problem, and I think you see it here in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 tells the people in the congregation to obey. And of course, it also goes on to say that these people have a responsibility for your souls, a responsibility to oversee you. See, in Scripture, responsibility and authority go together. It's not right to say, You're responsible for this domain, but you don't have real authority over it. All of you know at work that 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 just, that's not going to happen. You can't give somebody responsibility without giving them corresponding authority. Uh, Think about the captain of a ship. Maybe this is the classic example. The captain of the ship is responsible for everything that goes on in his ship. He may not be the one who carries out all the tasks. He's obviously not going to be, but he's got responsibility for everything that happens on his ship. But you know what else he has? He's also got absolute authority over that ship. The captain is the king of his ship. His word is final. Now, would a captain be willing to take on the responsibilities if he didn't have the corresponding authority? No, of course not. They have to go together. Uh, by the way, a lot of, um, this, is, this is one reason, I, I, I hinted at this in one of my talks this morning. This, I think, is one of the reasons why many men uh, don't want to marry. Many men out in the secular culture are not interested in marriage because while the office of husband would still seem to carry with it a lot of responsibility, it has been largely stripped of its authority. There's no prestige in being a patriarch. There's no authority that comes with it. Husband is not viewed as, as an office any longer. Being a father is not viewed as an office. There's no real authority. And so men today ask, is it worth taking on the responsibilities if there's no authority that comes with it? You know, it seems to be all burden without any of the benefits, you know, without any of the privileges. You get all these headaches, but you don't get the authority to go with it that might allow you to actually do something. Uh, Again, nothing is worse than being responsible for something, but not having the authority needed to fulfill those responsibilities. Well, what about in the church? Who is responsible for all saints? Greg. Okay, Greg. (laughs) Greg certainly is especially responsible. 
And then your elders are responsible along with Greg. You as officers are responsible for what happens in the church. Okay? You're responsible. So now let me ask you a question. Do you have authority? You've got responsibility for the church. Do you have the authority that goes with it? Do you have authority over all saints? Do you have authority to go with your responsibility? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, here's the thing. Servant authority, right? Servant authority, right. God says you have that authority. God says you have that authority. And this is what you need to understand. Hebrews 13 tells church members, obey your leaders. Okay, obey your pastor and your elders. Okay. They are to obey, which means you have authority to command. And you cannot have one without the other. And see, this is where I think the servant leadership model has really skewed things for us. And this may be something where you really have to think about how you can gently uh, reprogram your, your congregation, recalibrate things so this comes to be understood. But I think the servant leadership model has really skewed things. We need to recover the real, tangible, concrete authority that pastors and elders have over church members. Yes, it is true. That authority can be misused. If you overstep your bounds, like, say, the Pharisees did, if you ask people to do things that are contrary to Scripture, if you overburden them, if you are harsh or demeaning, those are the ways that you abuse your authority. But just like we would say the abuse of alcohol by some does not negate its proper use by others, so it is with the use of authority. Ecclesiastical authority has been abused, there's no doubt. The answer to that problem is not to destroy all hierarchy or office in the church. Rather, it is to wield authority properly, to exercise that authority, to use that authority in the right kind of way. So think about this. Some of the problems, some of the flaws with the servant leadership model, here's one way to think about it. If you go to a restaurant and you have a waiter, that waiter is your servant. And that waiter is not your leader in any sense whatsoever. That waiter is your servant. And you're going to give your order to that waiter. And you expect that waiter to go put your order in and then bring the food out to you just as you ordered it without any changes. But now think if you're going to go in for heart surgery. Uh, That surgeon is your servant. He's going to be working for you. He's going to be serving you as he operates on you, but he's going to be a servant leader. We hope he will be a servant leader. He's going to have your best interests in view. Your benefit is going to be in view. But as a leader, he's going to act decisively according to his wisdom, his training, his best judgment, and it would be disastrous for him to take orders for you in the midst of the surgery. You don't want him to take orders from you. You know that he knows best. Well, yeah, that's true. So that's what you want authority to be like in the church. You have been chosen to these roles, to these offices, presumably because you know best. You know what's best for the congregation. The same way the surgeon knows better than you what you need. In a sense, you've got to know better than the congregation what's best for the congregation. Uh, Let me unpack this a little bit further. We're told that to be a servant leader means to lead by serving, But we have to ask, what does that mean, or what should it mean? Well, again, think about marriage, because I've seen this happen a lot in marriages. A husband's supposed to be the servant leader of his wife, right? So some would say that means that he should please his wife. He's to please his wife. And so basically then, that translates into, he's only to lead her in ways that she permits him to. As if it becomes a situation where it's as if he needs her permission to actually lead her in some way. So he's actually only doing what she wants. And then next thing you know, husbands are submitting to their wives 
in everything, and we have completely reversed God's ordained authority structure in the home, all in the name of servant leadership. This concept that started off sounding so biblical has actually turned into something that's very contrary to Scripture. And I would say that's happened in a lot of Christian homes where both the husband and wife would say, we believe Ephesians 5. We believe everything the Apostle Paul wrote about men and women. But the way it gets worked out practically uh, the way it gets implemented, it, they actually end up doing the opposite of Paul's teaching in Ephesians. He, yes, serves her, which is wonderful, but he does not lead her. And so the servant part is there, but the leadership part is not. Servant leadership morphs into subservience. It devolves into subservience. It is true that Jesus served his disciples. You know, think of the foot washing uh, episode in John chapter 13. But it's not as if Jesus needed their permission, the disciples' permission, to do things. He actively led them. He didn't ask their permission to rebuke the Pharisees. They might not have liked that. Uh, he didn't check in with them before turning over tables in the temple. Uh, he didn't ask their permission when he commanded them explicitly what they were to do. So it's true he led by serving, but it's also true he served by leading. And that's what's missing today. See, what does it mean to be a servant leader? To be a servant leader means you lead for the good of those under your authority. Your leadership is for their benefit. Your gift of service is your leadership. You serve by leading. Your service is seen precisely in your wise, competent, mature leadership of the congregation. You serve by ruling, by ruling well, by exercising genuine authority that maintains good order in the church. And of course, that means considering who your congregation is, the strengths and weaknesses of your congregation. Again, if you, if you ignore who your congregation is, you ignore the needs of the congregation, uh, then this quickly becomes tyranny. And, and again, that's, that's, that's not the point. But you really do have authority, and you really do have to exercise that authority. In the church, we cannot let the servant leader concept devolve into mere servanthood. The church needs the leadership of its officers if it is to thrive. The same way a football team needs the leadership of its coach, the same way a symphony needs the leadership of the conductor, leadership, real leadership is necessary and essential to human thriving, to the flourishing of the people. Properly understood, servant leadership does not mean the people are always going to get their way. And that's how some people understand it. You have to actually lead. People are commanded to obey you, and they can't obey you if you never tell them what to do, which means if you never tell them what to do, they can't obey God. They're missing out on an opportunity to obey God. When you command your people, when you say, uh, we're going to do A and not B, we're going to be this kind of church and not that kind of church, you give your people an opportunity to obey you, and therefore you give them an opportunity to obey God and obey the scripture. And if you don't lead, if you don't make any decisive decisions, if you never insist on certain features in your church culture, then they really can't obey you, and Hebrews 13, 17 becomes meaningless. I think in order to alleviate this problem, uh, we've got to learn how to recast servant leadership. Uh, we've got to, 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 to uh, reprogram in terms of how we think about this, how we think about servant leadership. Some have actually suggested that we, uh, instead of talking about servant leadership, we should talk about servant lordship. You know, you're the servant lords of the congregation. You know, see, see if that helps. Or I, I like to talk about alpha servants. Okay, you know, um, you, you might be familiar with this talk about alpha and beta. You know, we talk about alpha and beta males today. Can we ask um, them to refer to us as Lord Alpha Servant? 
You can. You could do that. Yes, you could. Okay. Those categories of alpha and beta are kind of limited. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily great categories. They only get you so far. But they can be useful in a certain context. Uh, and so we talk about alpha and beta males, and the difference is leaders and followers, basically. Okay? Um, all too often today, churches are beta male factories. We just turn out very compliant, subservient type men, soft, passive, wimpy kind of men uh, all too often. We don't produce very many great leaders. Okay? And some of that is because of this servant leadership model. Changing all of that starts with reconceiving how we understand and practice leadership. And that means it starts with you all, with the men who lead the church. You have to be an alpha session. A session that, yes, is responsible for the congregation, but also understands its authority, its rule over the congregation. A session that takes charge of the congregation. Everyone who talks about alpha and beta, you know, if you say, well, what's, what's the difference between alpha and beta? What makes an alpha? Everybody who talks about this says the same thing. It's confidence. That's really what makes an alpha, is having confidence. So if you're going to be an alpha section, if you're going to be the alpha lords of the congregation, you have to be confident. You have to be confident in your calling and in your office. Now, not arrogant, okay? Don't confuse confidence with arrogance. But you've got to be confident. You've got to be able to say, God has made us officers in this congregation. He has appointed us to rule in this congregation. And he commands the congregation to obey us. God has commanded the congregation to obey your commands. That's how it works. Uh, you've got to be confident in your, in your vision, what you're calling the church to be. When you say, this is the kind of church we're going to be, you've got to be confident in that vision, now, in this, you can't serve yourself. That would be selfish. But you also can't serve the congregation in a way that's actually abdicating either because that's also selfish. It's really just taking the easy way out. And this is why a lot of sessions don't lead. It's kind of easier not to. Serve, and serve by giving the congregation the gift of decisive, strong, masculine, wise leadership. Do not be ashamed of the authority God has given to you. Be thick-skinned and tender-hearted. Be confident in the authority God has given to you as officers in the church so you can fulfill your responsibilities. And understand, you're going to take some lumps along the way. I mean, everybody who's been in leadership understands sometimes you're going to make a mistake as a leader. But if you stay focused on your goals, if you stay focused on a biblically-shaped vision for the church, everything's going to turn out just fine. Let me give a couple thoughts. Greg, do I have a couple minutes here to give a couple more thoughts on this? Um, to kind of close this out. And these are drawn from Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve. Are you all familiar with that book? Anybody read this book, Failure of Nerve? It's not a Christian book, but it's, it's, it's a useful book That's on leadership. I've never read that one, though. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised. Yeah, you'd be surprised how, how insightful this book is for a, for a non-Christian book. A couple things here to think about that he pulls out that I think are really significant. First, do not let empathy derail your leadership. Do not let empathy get in the way of leadership. Empathy can be a virtue or a vice depending on whether or not your empathy is guided by and limited by other biblical virtues. Give us an example of how that's been mishandled in your experience. Okay, uh, what was the last part of your question? Yeah, uh, so you've had some experience where somebody was empathetic at the expense of good leadership. Okay, yeah, so a great example of this is parents who can't discipline their kids. Because that would hurt my kid's feelings. And, and my kid may not be my best friend then. That's gonna, I can't inflict pain on my child. I love my child too much to do that. Okay, that's not real love speaking. That's misguided empathy. Uh, a lot of the church that has gone soft on the uh, LGBTQ plus issues is precisely because of empathy. Oh, I know some 
homosexuals and, and, and so forth, and they're very nice people. I would never want to say anything that would hurt their feelings. Okay, you want to see this in the church? The Church of England just did this. They had some bishops who came out with a statement saying, it was just shocking that the Church of England would say this, but they said that sex is only reserved for a man and a woman who are married to one another. Okay, well then a few days later, the archbishop and some other leaders in the church came out and said, we are so sorry that statement was made, and we know how hurtful that statement was. We didn't mean it. Okay, that's empathy, okay? It's, it's disastrous, but it's empathy, okay? That's, that's, or, or this, is, this is the classic example. Uh, Chamberlain, you know, in the run-up to World War II as the Nazis were amassing power, uh, Chamberlain, you know, goes over and, 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 and meets with people on the continent, that kind of thing, comes back and says, yes, peace in our time. And I mean, the reality is he was empathetic with Hitler. I mean, he heard their case and he sympathized with it. He was empathetic with it. Churchill did not have an empathetic bone in his body, and saw what needed to be done and was able to act decisively and said, no, this is, this is tyrannical and horrific and we must stop. And a lot of people didn't like it. But he knew it was the right thing to do. And so even though there was a lot of opposition, uh, he had confidence in what he was doing and he was not ruled by empathy. And so he was able to say, this is what we need to do. Okay, so now understand, okay, empathy can be a virtue. But without being guided by other virtues, it becomes a vice. Uh, because what it does is it'll, it leads to kind of ethical relativism where people's experiences or people's feelings become the final authority. You know, the, the rule of empathy is thou must not hurt another person's feelings. Okay, well, the reality is if you're going to lead, sometimes you're going to hurt your people's feelings with the decisions you have to make. It's just inevitable. I mean, that happens for husbands. I mean, a husband can listen to his wife and still say, you know what, honey, we need to... You know, we need to, I need to take this job in this other city. And she may not like that, but it, it, it's something they need to do. And he may have to hurt her feelings and recognize that he'll have to work through that with her, but he's got to do it. Or, you know, same kind of thing with disciplining a child, you know. Um, it's, it's, yes, it's going to be painful. You're going to inflict pain on your child, but you have to do it for the child's good. Uh, but empathy can get in the way of all those kinds of things. The reality is, it's, you know, empathy is feeling what another feels. And, and that's a good thing. It's good to connect, particularly with the pain and suffering of others. We, we know that that's something we're called to. We imitate Christ in that. We're, uh, we're being pastoral when we do that. But empathy can also keep us from acting when that action would rub someone the wrong way. I mean, this is another example of this. Okay, I know a church that they had a staff person who was just a disaster, but they could not bring themselves to fire him because... They knew it hurt his feelings and his wife's feelings and all of that. And so slowly, you know, the church's funds are being drained. People are leaving the church because this staff member is such a problem. And finally, they, they got to where they did it, but almost, it was almost too late. They almost bankrupted the church, almost lost the church. It's like, you know, good leadership would have done that a whole lot earlier in that process and saved the church a lot of trouble. But empathy carried the day, and it, and it, and it caused a lot of problems. So, so that, that, that's one aspect of this. The way that... Um, that Friedman puts it as he says, you've got to be able to differentiate. Okay, differentiate. So you're connected with people, obviously, through your relationships with them, and so you're able to feel what they feel, but you can also differentiate yourself so that you're not totally sucked in. You're not sucked into the vortex of their feelings. You can also differentiate and stand back and have some measure of objectivity and say, even though you, know, you have feelings X, Y, and Z about this, this is still what we need to do. Okay? Leaders who are overly empathetic can just never make a decision. 
Uh, you're, you're paralyzed into inaction because the reality is just about every significant decision you make in the life of the church is going to hurt someone. There'll be somebody who doesn't like it. Uh, every decision carries with it at least potentially a measure of controversy. Uh, so that's what you've got to keep in mind. Empathy can destroy your ability to lead if you let it. The other thing I want to mention that Friedman talks about quite a bit is anxiety. That anxiety is the enemy of faithful leadership or quality leadership. To be in a leadership position is to subject yourself to various stresses, worries, and anxieties. We see this with the Apostle Paul, his anxieties over the church. Greg, I would imagine in your, what, 18 years here, you've had moments of anxiety from time to time. Would that be fair to say? I've had moments without anxiety. Okay. <laughs> Occasionally, Greg has an anxiety-free moment, but it doesn't last. Okay, yes, that's, that's very, very true. Okay, yeah, it's especially, in, in, in the church, it's especially the pastor who bears anxiety because his life, and actually his living, is so bound up, and uh, in the life of the congregation, it's very easy to be anxious over things. There are many things that can trigger a pastor's anxiety, many things that can trigger a session's anxiety. An anxious session, this is what you need to understand, this is, this is Friedman, an anxious session will make for an anxious congregation. And an anxious congregation cannot be ruled. An anxious congregation becomes unruly because they don't trust the leadership anymore. You don't trust an anxious leader. Um, if Donald Trump seemed really, really anxious about impeachment, it'd be really hard for him to convince people that he's actually, that he hasn't done what he's been accused of. Okay? I'm not trying to make a political point here, but just, I mean, that, that's the kind of idea. If you are really anxious, that anxiety is contagious. It ripples out and it's a kind of acid that eats through trust. So leaders, if you are in a position of leadership, which all of you are, leaders have to master their emotions. To lead, you have to be committed to always being the calmest person in the room, especially if that room happens to contain a congregational meeting and emotions are running really high. When the congregation is at its most emotional, that's when you have to be at your calmest. There, there's a kind of I'd say a sort of stoicism in this. I mean, we're not buying into the whole philosophy of stoicism, and there's a good and proper place for emotions. But as a leader, you've got to always be the master of your emotions. You have to have a kind of public stoicism, as it were. Do not be an anxious presence. Be a calming presence to your congregation. And again, this really goes back to the confidence that you have in your office and in your calling and in your vision. If you doubt your authority, or if you doubt your vision, or if you doubt your decisions, those doubts are going to be multiplied through your congregation. So remember, here to sum this up, you serve by leading, by developing a vision, by making decisions, by giving orders. And as you lead this way, this is how you serve your congregation. So my exhortation to you is go be an alpha pastor, go be an alpha session.